Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today we have with us again, Martin Wells. He has worked as a psychotherapist in the NHS for over 30 years. He also teaches mindfulness from a non-dual perspective. He is also an author, and today he's joining us again to talk about his new book, No One Playing, The Essence of Mindfulness in Golf and in Life. And it is such a pleasure to have him on with us again. Nice to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you again. Where are you at in the UK? We're um, based in Bristol in the west of England. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, and you know, there's a lot of golfing out here in Colorado. Yeah. Like some of the most beautiful golf Mm. courses. You know, in my kid's family, my ex-husband who golfs, a lot of their togetherness has been around golf. Yeah. You know, like aunts and uncles and, you know, father and son, they commune here on the golf course often. Mandy and her father, that's like, something that they like to do yeah yeah absolutely yeah do you think it's because it's there's like the space and that space isn't always created you know here in the world and in many activities yeah I think that's a part of it you know you're you're spending four hours or so with someone and if you're just playing with one other person you're spending four or five hours with that person yeah no I think it I think it is really true and you're out in a spacious place so you know symbolically you're not confined some of the most beautiful golf courses i've ever played are like a diamond in the rough like there was this one in cave springs arkansas just in the middle of nowhere where there were frogs like on the greens and then all of a sudden there'd be a cow (laughs) (laughs) and it's one of my favorite memories because there was this little old man who had on overalls and he had like the oldest golf clubs I've ever seen. <laughs> I was like, those are definitely an antique. And it was a really slow day. I was the beer cart girl. And <laughs> he asked me if I wanted to try some of his family's moonshine. And it was like this special recipe. So anyway, we sat and talked. And when he was done, he ended up getting into this old beat up truck. And he was just this nice, quiet soul. And after he left, the manager was like, do you know who that was that you were like hanging out with all day? And I was like, who? He's like, he owns Tyson Chicken. And I was like, no way. <laughs> this man was the most humble person I'd ever met. And he's worth millions and mil- you know, millions of dollars and had these old antique golf clubs. <laughs> but we had the best day just talking fantastic sounds wonderful it was you know when I had my near-death experience I share a lot what kind of catapulted me into my journey of mindfulness Mm. was Mm. that I had to move slow I was forced to slow down in my recovery and I feel like that's what golf does for people naturally it it brings them more present like without having to go through that trauma like I did (laughs) (laughs) I feel like five to six, you know, how long it takes. A lot of people cannot be that present for that long. It's very difficult. But if you're doing something like golf, yeah, yeah, this is so good, Martin. And you're actually only playing the game for about a minute and a half. Like the actual, yeah, the actual part. Yeah. 
yeah, the rest of it is walking, thinking, talking, yeah. silence. Unless you're like yeah. Happy Gilmore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> Me too. Bob Barker was hilarious in that movie. Yeah. yeah. That was a good one. But, you know, we just were talking about with one of our last guests about how he's like, you know, men have such an issue sometimes with mindfulness, which we know you don't. Back your prior book was sitting in stillness. Yeah. You no, know, I think men have a tendency to overthink things just like in golf. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Not just approach them for what they are, but but maybe need to pull them apart or understand them or or, or work out what's next. And I think women are much better at being present and accepting things for what they are. I think men struggle yeah. with acceptance. In my husband's line of work, he wine and dines a lot of his you know clients. Like this past weekend, I think he took DHL out golfing. And, you know, in corporate America, that golf is huge. That's what they do to go, yes. you know, sign the dotted line, get to know each other. <laughs> and it goes very against the grain of their normal conversations on Zoom or when they're in public. Mm. Because I've had many years of listening to their conversations. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of input. It's a lot of hard talk. It's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of fast talking. Yes. And some of the best relationships he's built with customers is in the slowness of the golf game. Yes, yes. I thought you were going to say a strip club, Mandy. <laughs> uh, I think those days are over, hopefully. But, you know, they bond there, too. <laughs> I don't know if it slows them down, though. No, I was going to say. I was going to say. <laughs> They probably have a lot of mindfulness there, too. <laughs> no, I think that's they're dropping into bodies and using discernment. <laughs> I wonder if there's another factor as well, as this, the slowness, I think, is important. And I wonder if there's something about ego and golf yeah. in, the, in the fact that, you, you, as a golfer, you can't say, I'm... I'm doing well today, or I'm I'm going to play well today. You don't know, do you? So so you've got to you've got to have some humility, and I wonder if that helps in a in a business community. If you're having conversations on the golf course, then maybe maybe ego doesn't um, be so important on the course. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. I think that's. A pretty amazing thought because I mean our ego is naturally um, relaxed or should I say put put a little bit to sleep it takes a nap like when you go hiking yes. when yeah when yes. you go skiing and snowboarding because the energy of earth and just nature um, yes. naturally has that effect on you so I think that that's probably very much true yeah yeah exactly so um, when my husband and i are going to have a big fight or we need to have some rough conversation i'm going to make sure i take him to the golf course <laughs> to do so his ego doesn't get in the way <laughs> it's also perhaps the the notion that you can't force things so the beauty isn't it of, of a golf swing is that you you can't force it and if you if you try and 
if you try too much or if you grasp too tightly, like you might do in a business negotiation or something, it's not going to work. So, so maybe, again, there's something symbolically that happens on the course where you let things flow a bit more rather than push the river. Yeah, but it's just how much we complicate things, that ego. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a, it's a real tendency, isn't it? We do complicate when we don't need to. Krishnamurti was once asked if he could sum up all his teachings in one phrase. And quite surprisingly, he had a go at it. And he, he said, I'd have to say, I don't care what happens. Now, he, he, he didn't say, I don't care. Like, he, he cares deeply about, about life and humanity and, and nature. But I don't care what happens. So it's letting go of, of the outcome. Any investment yeah, in the outcome. Yeah. Wow. I, I think I felt that way because it's almost like when I think about like life or death, of course I want to live and I want to be here. Yes. No, but I'm not afraid of the other side. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's that and surrendering, right? Yes, it's that surrendering. And it's classic mindfulness in a way because as we sit and just allow things to arise, we don't care what arises. There's a neutrality to that. And, and what arises, arises. What knocks on the door, knocks on the door. A near-death experience or crisis of some sort. These things, they arise and we stay open to them. We welcome them as open-heartedly as we can. Wow, we've grown. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's such a hard thing to explain sometimes to people. Like, for example, yesterday I had a friend who's she's she's letting the worry of the future steal presence today yeah yes and she's worried about her father possibly passing and the choices he's making and then her sister who's in addiction and she's consumed in this fear that she might have to have two funerals next year for her family mm. members mm. and i deep down wanted to say if that's what happens, that's what happens. Yeah. You're letting that fear and that worry take away from these moments now you could have. Yes. And yeah. we do that, right? We consume ourselves with worry over things that haven't even happened yet. It would also sound very cold for me to be like, well, and if you do have to throw two funerals next year for him, <laughs> it, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm often having that conversation, I think, with people like your friend, you know, who are struggling with stuff now, stuff in the future. And it's how we talk about that. It's quite important, I think, isn't it? So we don't sound like we're some new age people who are just dismissing something or, or, or dismissing the, the pain or the suffering that's going on in the mind. But also we want to help them cut through that so they don't keep getting caught with it. And of course, it's easier with a friend, isn't it? Because they know that actually we're on their side. We're not saying that in any way to hurt them, but to liberate them, hopefully. In your yeah. new book, No One Playing, you go through these many lessons in your many different chapters. You are teaching mindfulness and these things to the reader. They're yeah. learning through these stories yeah. on yeah. maybe even realizations that are common to most all of us. Yes, I would say the essence of mindfulness, because um, mindfulness, of course, 
because of anything that becomes popular starts to get colonized a bit by people who think maybe that they know more about mindfulness than the buddha or something and you know we need to be careful with that i think but i think the essence of mindfulness is that pure presence it's not about progress or getting any further or self-improvement it's about a realization of our true nature Mm, kind of like when I was crocheting, like I told you. Yes. That's an essence. In a way, that the crocheting you were talking about, there's no one doing it. There is crocheting. You're not thinking, oh, I should do this, or maybe I no. So it's a there's a there's a, a loss, there's a dissolving of the self, of the I thought, and there's just an immersion in in whatever activity. And of course, babies and animals do that all the time. Mm-hmm. But as grown-up human beings, or mostly grown-up, then there's we've got all that conditioning and all that I thought and all that pressure to do it well or not do it this way or do it that way. And, and we're returning to that pure state, that infant state, where we can see things as they are and immerse ourselves in. Besides golf, what other things... I'll take you out of that ego and into the eye. Everything. Ideally, yeah. ideally everything. Because then life is, is a meditation or a form of yoga. But, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in my work as a therapist and teacher of mindfulness is that, you know, each time I sit with someone, then hopefully that's an immersion in the process, in the relationship. So one thing that can happen in working in coaching or counselling or, or psychotherapy is that we can be a, a bit too tuned in to ego. What, what do I need to do here? Or am I doing it properly? Or, or I need to be helpful, those sorts of things. So for me, working is, is meditation. This talking to you is meditation because it's observing ego, but, but it's not coming from ego so it's coming from a source well the the name of your podcast you know it's that it's coming from that sense of soul that connects us beyond the human so all of it is meditation all of it wow i love that yeah and the way you speak though it brings me to mindfulness yes yeah that's a trained thing is it well it the naming of the first book was sitting in the stillness and that came from i met a chinese buddhist nun who worked in our psychiatric hospital she was only 30 something but she'd been a nun for half her life really and she ran a group meditation group on a on a psychiatric ward so some people who were very distressed and, and upset And it was successful. And I said to her, well, how would you describe what you're doing? And she says, I sit in my stillness and I invite people into theirs. Okay, so I sit in my stillness and I invite people into theirs. And I think that's what you're talking about just in that moment there. So there's an invitation. We all know people we've sat with and been with and just sitting with them is an invitation in into our own stillness and notice it's not something that's passed from one to another like a do this and then you'll feel better Mm -hmm. it's a it's a resonance between beings 
where the, the invitation is through that being. And it's not a doing either. Such duality that you are so focused, but yet there is no work to focus. Exactly, exactly. There's a lovely little Zen poem, which I think sums it up. I don't know who wrote it. It's an ancient Zen poem. And it says, nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be. And just that, those simple three things. So, of course, nowhere to go means we, we sit in our stillness. There's, there's nowhere to go physically or mentally in that moment. We're just here, like the crocheting, you know, just... There you are, nowhere else to be. Nothing to do. So, so the, the doing is not, is not an action that comes from ego or mind. Any doing comes, just comes spontaneously. Like in Buddhism, it's called right action. It's just like it comes from the source, from, from a place of stillness. And no one to be. So nothing to prove or... No performance, no worries about how people will see me or, you know, all of that can just fall away so that then we can be true to who we are and true to this moment, whoever we're talking to. And I know that if you practice mindfulness, even on your busiest day, it actually will help you. Yes, yes. And the, the thing to remember is the stillness hasn't gone anywhere. It, it's not a it's not a literal stillness. Like it it helps to sit still and be still as as a formal practice. But if we get up from the formal practice and then spend the next twenty three hours rushing about, we're we're probably not you know practicing it in in a lived way. But the thing to remember is that the stillness doesn't go anywhere at all. It's it's always present there in the background. So it's possible to be to be busy and pay attention to that stillness. I noticed the difference between unpacking my home versus unpacking it two years ago. Right, and yeah. It was so much different. It felt like I was just being more mindful and like pulling the paper out and then folding it because I'm passing on the boxes and the paper to other people. And uh -huh. instead of just rushing through it, I was just looking at each thing I took out, like, oh, I love this. I'm so glad I have this. And, and it was <laughs> nice. just very peaceful to do it. it. didn't feel so, like, rushed to get things done. And you want to know what? I was more productive. Yeah. I got, really? I got done. The yeah. boxes were organized. Yeah, it was great. We're so growing. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good example, isn't it? That we think that it, it's the busyness that makes a difference. But actually, when we bring a stillness to an action, it's, it's got a different energy to it. In Chinese, they, they call it wei wu wei, which is the action of no action. It's a paradox, obviously. It's action without trying to act. Like, perhaps, as, as you were saying, maybe, like, the last time you packed, there was action fueled by agitation whereas action fueled by a stillness and, and a peacefulness has a very different quality to it and you know what like we were just saying if you have that willingness to surrender yes. with no outcome you are giving up anything that may be you know in the past 
Exactly. You're not worried about the future and you are just being present. Exactly that. Exactly that. I need to do this with my closet. <laughs> when you are in action, having to do something like moving or something, there's a lot of sometimes like emotions attached to different yeah. things. And even when you're going through old stuff, I know, yeah. you know, with my dad, you know, when he had passed, getting rid of some of the stuff was, you mm. know, there was that attachment, you know, to some of those things. Yeah. And so there's so much emotion sometimes, or maybe, yeah. you know, you don't want to leave somewhere or, yes. or maybe even the excitement yeah. of moving somewhere. There's a lot of stuff that can get in the way of that mindfulness sometimes, or just, or maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part no, of the part experience. Of Absolutely part of it. I, I mean, years ago, when I first got interested in meditation, I think I was looking to sort of transcend it and feelings and, and thoughts and, and difficult stuff right. and thought I could just be like smiling like a Buddha in the corner. Sort of <laughs> but, but, but no, it's actually the opposite because let's say we're packing up our father's things and, and it's painful, there's emotions that arise absolutely with being with those because mm -hmm. that's the stillness that we're talking about the stillness of okay this is arising this is painful this hurts of course just let it let it be there yeah because sometimes you haven't created that space exactly yeah no exactly and that's really common in our culture isn't it that we we move on move on without grieving without letting go without yeah. feeling the full intensity of our feelings. Mandy, I know you move all the time, but do you experience that when you go through the stuff? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do, for sure. Like it's even like kids stuff, right? You're like, oh, I remember when mm. they wore this. <laughs> it's like Christmas every two years for me when I unpack. <laughs> <laughs> and memories, and memories, you know? And then also lots of letting go, purging. I enjoy purging. Yeah. You know, Martin, I loved what you said earlier because I was thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh. I think one of the reasons we really enjoyed him was because he does what you do. Mm. He invites you. Yes. He yes. invites you into your own stillness just by yes. being around him. Yes. Um, and... You could probably actually just become like a, a billionaire by inviting people into your stillness because you're so good at it. <laughs> Mandy's like, you want to come to my new house? <laughs> sit in the corner. Um, so, so, you know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is, and we talked about it, that people think you're not being productive when yes. you're, when you're, creating that stillness so you know yeah. there's the whole saying that i learned in aa expectations equal future resentments mm. and a lot of people get confused because they're like so then how do you plan things like how do you have and, and they get it confused the same with mindfulness and stillness so is it wrong do i not plan things if there's no doing then yeah. can i fill my calendar up still do you plan martin do you have a calendar yes. full of planning <laughs> yeah <laughs> <He never sees. laughs> yeah otherwise you couldn't organize this could you know i'd be sitting upstairs looking at my navel instead of talking to you 
Yeah, no, yes, of course, plan. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's how you plan and what you do with the plans that don't go the way you were wishing. Now, like John Lennon's lyric, you know, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. You know, and, and, and make the plans, but, but don't in any way grasp them or, or, or think that they're in any way fixed because, of course, they can't be. None, none of us know what's happening tomorrow, let alone next week. I was just thinking about that, that impermanence, which mm. is sometimes so hard for people to... Absolutely. It's really tough, isn't it, for people? It's, it's yeah, that was a huge control. thing for me. I mean, that yes, was a yes. huge realization for me, impermanence. Yeah. Understanding impermanence helped me be more successful with being mindful. Yes, yes. Reminds me... Um, the first time I heard about Thich Nhat Hanh was from my psychotherapist. She lived in Boston, but she was originally from Alabama, I think. She said she'd heard him give a talk. And she said, first, first the flower is becoming the garbage, and then the garbage is becoming the flower. And I always, always remember saying that. And, and I thought, yeah, that's just so simple and beautiful, isn't it? Really? Yeah. And some would say, what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What are you talking about? Garbage in the flower. I feel like if someone were to come to you um, for some, some therapy, some guidance, it, it sounds like it would be more of an experience. Yes. It's interesting you say that because in a way, there's no doing in, in the therapy these days. It's more of a meeting and an attempt to sort of resonate, just really listen to what the other person is experiencing. And it's like you with your friend, in a sense. Part of it is also, you know, just can, can we be present and can you watch your mind and where it goes rather than follow it all over the place and caught up with that, really. So, yeah, it is an experience. And for me, too, that's part of the privilege, really. You know, my uncle Dwight and my aunt Phyllis are just very calm, mindful mm. people. Mm. And I remember always placing judgment on that. My ego did when I was young. Ah. Like, they don't like me. They don't talk to me very much. They're so quiet. You know, I made it all about me. Like, they <laughs> hardly say anything. You're uncomfortable with that. Yeah. It was all because I had never been around someone like that. And I was uncomfortable with quiet and stillness mm. because mm. I, I didn't know that in my own house. Yeah. And the story I told myself about them is insane. I used to say, oh, it's because they have such smart kids and they're so smart. I'm too dumb for them. And I made huh? this all up in my wow. head. Wow. Based off of just being I mean going back to what Shanna said be, it was all about me being uncomfortable yes. but the stories that came out of it I mean yes. isn't it crazy the stuff our ego can tell us oh yeah and the stories that get created unbelievable isn't it I mean that's 90% of my work really is helping people notice that story and and stop identifying with it I mean it's going to be there it's it's each of our stories it's still there 
we don't have to identify with it anymore. You obviously don't. But, but it's interesting, isn't it, the power of that story and the influence upon it, particularly if we identify with it. And how are you now with the mandate? Oh, my gosh. I, oh, they're just so beautiful. And I just, <laughs> I, I feel so heard when I'm around mm. them because mm. they are they're not trying to just come up with words to respond. So they're amazing listeners. They share beautiful stories about traveling and what they've learned all over the world. And they're just, they're just calm. They're calm mm -hmm. and, and wise. And, and, you know, my brothers and I created this story together because we used to sit at the kids table at Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I don't know why parents do that. And then when you're like a teen and you have to sit with like the little, little kids, you're like, this is bull crap. <laughs> this chair is so small for me. <laughs> but me and my brothers used to sit there and be like, we can't talk to our cousins because they're, that family is just too smart for us. They just think we're dumb. I mean, that's so sad that we thought that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they earn it all like that. They're non-judgmental. They're kind. They're wonderful. Mm. The power of projection. Mm -hmm. mm. The stories we tell ourselves. I have a dish towel that Shannon and I had in our truck that says, bury me on the golf course so my husband will visit me once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of clients who don't really come to me for self-care they're coming to me for their golf game <laughs> <laughs> but that is their space that that helps them you know get to this place that so many of us you know have have seen as such a challenge mm. yeah you know we had this one lady Anna and she uh taught us about light language and at the end of our episode, how we always ask someone to break that shit down, she just sat there and she, she just kind of nodded her head and smiled and, and messaged me and was like, say something. She doesn't get it. Like, say something. We were dying. We didn't know what to do. We were like, oh my God, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> and then we got it. Cause no, I, then I said something to her. And then she said, this, this is light language. And we were like, oh, my God. And then it just turned into a beautiful stillness. Mm. Mm. But it was awkward, though. Sometimes, you know, we're so used to adding words, like Mandy said, or, you know, finding something in our brain to think about mm. that it's uncomfortable. It can be, you know, uncomfortable at first. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Has anyone ever said to you, or have you ever thought about how sometimes stillness can make someone feel uncomfortable? Or have you felt like someone that was in your presence felt uncomfortable? Oh, yes, definitely. And it's not an uncommon thing for people like to meditate and drop into that stillness or, or sometimes an emptiness and take a bit of a U-turn because it's frightening. It, there's a loss of structure, a loss of, of the familiar. 
So, yeah, it, it's common. And I think one of the things that goes with teaching people mindfulness is to say, well, this, is, this might happen and it might be somewhat frightening and it's part of you letting go. So if you can, just continue with that and continue the letting go. Yeah, because when I first started mindfulness, Martin, I had to look for something to do during it. Yes. Yes. That was so awkward for me. Um, mm. So I, I chose a mala to begin with, and then yes. I wanted music. But like when I think back, my most successful time, it's not the mala. It's in, yeah. in believe me, actually, the mantra, the chanting actually was a big part of my journey. Yes. <laughs> but it was the stillness that, it, like you said, I didn't, I didn't actually create. Yes. in crocheting yes exactly exactly so I, yeah i mean for me it was going on several silent retreats seven day silent retreats and, and and being immersed in that silence for that length of time taught me i mean it, it, it was really busy in my head for the first two or three days but it taught me just to carry on sitting with that you know eventually to really enjoy the spaciousness and the stillness and the silence and but, you know, most people in our culture aren't conditioned to stop and just be. We're supposed to be getting on with something or doing something. I mean, the most quiet I can get might be if I go clean that closet, <laughs> lock yeah. myself in there for the rest <laughs> of the day. You're talking yourself into it. I am. I'm really, you know, I'm really close to it right now. And it's like bothering me. <laughs> I'm like, I need to do this. <laughs> There was this song that I remember really affected me once, and it was by Metallica. It was called One. Uh And it's about a gentleman who gets his arms and legs blown off um, by a landmine in war, and he ends up, you know, blind and deaf. Uh And I remember thinking to myself, like, even just right now, I could barely breathe thinking about it because that used to scare me so much Mm. to think of being stuck in my own head. Mm. Mm. that's the stillness of not being able to see anything move around you and then to also not be able to hear Mm. and that song just made me so sad for this man that it happened to and I will say as I've gotten older it doesn't scare me as much and Mm. I think that that's growth because that would be the ultimate stillness which in reality is kind of the place I experienced when I had my outer body experience and my near death experience, because my body was gone. You don't see with eyes, you don't hear with ears. So it doesn't scare me as much anymore, but that song was Mm. very powerful. Mm. It's like being alone. You know, so many people fear of being alone. It's uncomfortable to be alone. And I think that if you can be alone and I don't know though, Martin, I mean, if you can be comfortable with that inner voice and with just being still, do you think that if for some reason everyone left and you don't, and and you understand the impermanence, you know, those things will help a little bit if the whole world did disappear and here you are. Yes, there's a there's a Catholic writer who I quite like called Henri Nouon, and he said one of the spiritual challenges is to move from loneliness to solitude. So in, in solitude we have a you know just a relaxed way of being alone, and we don't desperately need other people to fulfil ourselves. 
But in loneliness, of course, we then we do need other people. Otherwise, we don't feel enough or fulfilled. And of course, that leads to relationships where people are clinging to each other rather than just being side by side along the way in life. Because you don't need someone to play golf. No, exactly. <laughs> in the book, I'm not. I'm not playing with someone. I, I've got um, the Asian guy in my ear, but uh, no, I haven't. I'm playing on my own, and you can play on your own. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. When I had my near-death experience, there was um, an Asian girl who came with me, but she didn't talk. Uh huh. She just sat with me, and then when I was feeling anything, she would just come over and touch me with her energy. Wow, lovely. I know. Beautiful. So, so tell us about your golf game. Come on, let's let's get down to the nitty and gritty. <laughs> what, what, what's your score? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm still playing off nine, so single figures. Um, yeah. And I play one once a week, mostly with a friend of mine. Um, and we play on uh, really you talk about beautiful courses it's about 45 minutes drive from here it's 900 feet above sea level so it's it's on a sort of plateau and you can see 30 miles that way 30 miles that way 30 miles that way from one part of the course it's really stunning that's amazing is he a physical friend like a real friend Oh yes, <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I do have some real friends. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, did Did you have a lot of imaginary friends when you were young? No, I don't think I did. I don't remember having an imaginary friend. Um, I was I was uh, I was uh, on my own till seven, and then my brother was born when I was seven. Um, Me too. Yeah. Yeah. You, I was in I was in Lake Havasu, Arizona. <clears throat> and we always go there because the the lake itself is just beautiful a lot of mm. boating and it was kind of a windy day so we decided to go um like 40 miles to this like desert town and we found this golf course that is the most beautiful golf course i've ever played mm. it was nothing but desert but it had like these rock formations and um, mm. there was, this, there was this one hole where you would hit the ball and you could hear the ball ricochet off the, the rock wall. <laughs> <laughs> wow. If if you had any like type of, you, you know, what, are the, what, I can't even think golf right now. Cause my brain is fried. Um, what do they call it? Slice. If you had any sort of slice, you were screwed on this hole. You would hear yeah. the ball ricochet the walls, but it's. <laughs> But I think what's been cool for me with golf, too, is experiencing the different types of courses, the different types of landscape, bring a different energy to the game. And so um, I think that that's also the mm. aspect of golf that people don't realize is you get to see so many different landscapes that are so beautiful yes. in different ways. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I've just booked up to go to Bandon Dunes Golf in Oregon in August. Ooh, beautiful. Part yeah. of the, do you know the Shivas Irons Society? No, tell us about it. So the, the Shivas Irons Society grew out of Michael Murphy's book, Golf in the Kingdom, he wrote in the 1980s, which I'd really recommend to you. It's a wonderful book. And out of that came a society interested in learning about 
the inner game about the mind, mindfulness. That that was the purpose of the society. Wow. So Google them and uh, have a look at the website. For me, it's a lovely society to be a part of because it's exactly what floats my boat, really. <laughs> well, Martin, it's been such a pleasure to have you on again. For me too. <laughs> so No One Playing is the name of your new book. They can find it anywhere. I mean, I've looked at it, found it everywhere pretty much. Yeah, I get it. I heard um, through the grapevine that the buyer for Barnes & Noble really liked it. That would be a place. I know that they've got quite a few copies because I think she bought some. So. Awesome. Is your next uh, is your next book going to be No One Fishing? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's it's like you can find mindfulness and stillness yeah. in everything that you do and even in the closet that I have to clean today. Absolutely. Definitely. And Tignatan taught that didn't mean beautifully yeah mandy the next book is is a book of poetry comes out in november oh yay will it be like zen poetry kind of yes it's sort of mindfulness yeah. non-duality poetry perfect well then I, we can't wait to have you on again next year then let's do it <laughs> we'll just do once a year <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for break that shit down I think, given what's going on in the world, I'd like to say a little bit about Ukraine and Russia and how we as, as beings manage that. And, and of course, you've mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, committed his life to, to peace and, and talking about peace. And someone was telling me the other day that he, he tells a story of, of someone, a rape, where I think it is a fisherman, actually, rapes a young girl. And in his contemplation of it and his meditation of it he said I am that fisherman I have that potential to be that fisherman so being peaceful isn't saying I'm not like that it's saying I have the potential to be like that but I'm not hopefully going to act that out in the world so a few of us therapists in the in the UK have been talking about for example how we might look at Vladimir Putin and claim those qualities as us not try and distance ourselves from them so we might say which is true sometimes i invade people's space sometimes I, I like to be right even though i'm not sometimes i might bully other people i might bully myself in, internally you know, all these things are possible within every human being the challenge in that, this is where we come to mindfulness and non-duality, is that whilst we say, I am that, we also at the same time say, I'm not that. Because Vladimir Putin ultimately isn't that either. Our true nature is, is loving and connected and peaceful. So we're not that. But we, we can't take the bypass. We have to, we have to claim all our potentialities. And, and then in relationships with others, we can notice our potential for, for those things and act in a different way, act in a loving way. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that, for that perspective. It was interesting because I had a moment where I sat and I thought, wow, we've gone too far. I know how that feels. 
Yes. You're just like, I've dug myself a hole. How am I going to get out of this one? I think that might be how he feels. And, you know, and that was a moment where, where I connected to that. Exactly. And that's what Gandhi meant, I think, when he said, be the change that you want to see in the world. Yeah. So you, you catch yourself noticing that, yeah, you, you might go too far. It's a good example. You've gone too far. Because it doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, bomb the country next to us. It just means that it, that human dynamic is possible in us. And of course, if we establish that inner peace, whilst noticing that potential maybe to go too far or, or whatever, then of course, we're not only making a contribution here in terms of ourselves, but also in relation to anyone we're with, our families and friends, etc., communities. But even beyond that, because it's there's a collective consciousness that that feeds into. Great reminder. That was so powerful. You know, I've just I've said this like the last four episodes, but I keep saying it over and over. Is I've I've slowly figured out that everything you see or experience or do ultimately can come back. To, it comes back to you. I had a moment of compassion because hurt people hurt people yes yes and, and it felt uncomfortable for me to have compassion for him mm. because he's done such horrible things yes that then i had to sit and think why is it that you feel uncomfortable having compassion for people that have done wrong so there there was a learning in it and mm. and i think you're right we can all take what's happening and learn about ourselves and then be the change we want to see so thank yeah. you for that you're welcome hey martin do you ever heard the story about and i can't remember where it was at but it was like a speaker was speaking about forgiveness and compassion and a, a woman rose her hand and said well how do you have compassion for someone like hitler yes he started to tell a story about a little boy and it was about how he had been very abused and his um, mother had died and all these things. And at the end mm -hmm. of his story, he says, and that little boy was Hitler. Was Adolf Hitler, yes. And during that, you know, his talk about the boy, there, I mean, people were emotional thinking about yes. this boy. And at the end, this woman goes to hug him. And as she does, her sleeve falls and you can see the numbers of where uh -huh. she was in a concentration yes. camp and yes. she says to him you made me feel compassion for someone who I yes. thought I could only have hate for yes indeed and we see it don't do particularly with the, the sort of narcissistic leaders that that have been coming to the fore in the last few years you know for me Donald Trump and that whole thing was fascinating to, to watch and to understand as a therapist and we've got our own Boris Johnson and there are many others around the world but the, the narcissist actually at the core is full of self-loathing they really hate themselves and this is the hurt people hurt people again and they need to keep inflating themselves and having more followers and being more popular in order that they don't feel that self-loathing but we can have compassion for the self-loathing because it's an awful awful start in life and an awful place to be and that doesn't mean by the way that we we allow ourselves to be bullied you know sometimes it's the right thing to stand up to the bully and that might even take 
some sort of peaceful but violent action in a sense, assertive. It might need that. So we're not talking about a, a passivity, but you can have, again, compassion within, within those actions. Wow, it's amazing. I love it. Thank you for showing us and giving us another perspective on that. Just been delightful to spend time with you again. Martin, you're amazing. Thank you for inviting us into your space and your stillness today. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Thanks for what you're doing and thanks for inviting me on. It's, the book is, of course, it's about golf in some ways, but you know where we've gone with the conversation is what I hope for, that, that people deepen their conversations around these issues. And to share that with you too has been, been great. Great. Thank you so much. Is there a website that you have for your book? Non-dual mindfulness, which is all one word, dot com. And are you still practicing and working with clients as well? Yeah, I'm uh, two days a week in our National Health Service and two days a week uh, privately teaching, supervising therapy as well. Therapy looks a bit different these days from what it used to, but yeah. Fifth working day was uh, us looking after my granddaughter, who um, who's now gone to school, so uh, we oh. we don't have to look after anymore. Have you got time for a quick story about her? Oh, please, please. This so this came after the book. I've taken her to a local playground, and as part of the playground, there's a there's a sort of quite a little rock face that you can climb on. She's only three and a half at the time, and she starts climbing up, and I say, um, well, maybe you should put your hand there and your foot there you know there's a nice little handhold there and she looked up at me and she said stop giving me instructions they're a distraction three and a half <laughs> she could have written a book couldn't she right I was thinking there's so much behind that isn't there yeah first of all great language for three <laughs> yeah not bad yeah <laughs> yeah we'll have her on in a few years okay <laughs> oh my god I love that wow that's smart. No, well, thank you for having me as well. It's been real enjoyable, really pleasurable too. Thank you. Awesome. Take care. Namaste. Namaste. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you will come back next week. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate, like, and subscribe. Thank you. We rise to lift you up. Thanks for listening.